This week on Common Sense with Paul Jacob, we had five pieces. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We had at least three good titles. You liked you liked a few of them actually. I was I was trying to think of which were the best. Yeah, I like the uh, I like the four froms just because it plays off of the four freedoms, which of course FDR put forward that really weren't freedoms and kind of started to screw everything up. And of course, that particular uh, uh, commentary is about the New York Times and their attempt editorially to suggest that we screw up the word liberty. And um, that, I think, is is something that um, is uh, maybe not new, but uh, it we have so many forces uh, pulling this country in a direction of more and more government. Uh, we don't have a script this week about the government spending money crazy, but they've been spending money crazy, and they seem to think that they can keep doing it in terms of we're now debating new benefits that are going out to people. We, it sounds like sometimes we may never be able to uh, go back to work. It might be a year, two years, eight years, six months, whatever it is. It's as if we can just afford to just drop ship money to everybody. We've said it a zillion times, but we continue to do it. Spending money so fast with the expectation that if we need to do that same blurging of cash for people for month after month after month, we can just afford to do it at the same time that we're not producing anything. And um, the the freedom that the New York Times talked about, and we talked about in the four froms, um, that that's the liberty of having stuff given to you by the government, health care, education, other things. And obviously some of these things are, are commodities that are being provided in many cases by the government. Um, but it's it's the sort of thing where that is something we do with the excess of production because we have been a society that produces things abundantly. Wealth is created. It's spread. More people have jobs. More things are being done. And, and it's, a, it's a great cycle. And we are now entering a cycle where we seem to think that we no longer have to do that, at least for a while. We can just live off of, I don't know what, excess production in the past. I mean, you know, some of us have savings. Some of us could live off our savings for a while. A lot of us could not. And, of course, the government doesn't have a whole lot of savings. They've got $20 trillion in debt, or is it 21 now, or 23, or whatever. You know, we'll lose, got to lose count after a while. So um, it's... It, it seems to me that that's something that it's tougher even to talk about because nobody's talking about it. You know, with a commentary program, I got a, I've got other full I have a couple of full time jobs. It seems like trying to do political things with Liberty Initiative Fund, with Citizens in Charge, uh, and Citizens in Charge Foundation, and so you know I've got stuff to do. I kind of think that. Uh, now I've completely lost my train of thought. We're basically talking about that people think that they have enough extra just to carry on forever. And in a, in a sense, this idea of luxury 
I mean, this is just my idea. It's, you didn't write about it, but but it, it sort of reminds me of t- uh, your Tuesday piece. Uh, was it the wide world of woke, wherein people are concerned about words? There's not enough important issues in the world that they want to reform the words for body parts because they're somehow not woke enough. You know, it was the kind of thing where it's almost not serious enough to take it seriously. This is the, the script, The Wide World of Woke. And it was about, you know, the idea that somehow uh, we need to change the term Adam's apple because that's male-centered. And, and you know, it's not as if every, you know, our language is certainly you know, injects uh, sex into a lot of things, not so much as some of the language. You, know, you got French and Spanish and, you know, the cup holder and the, and the shower curtain is either male or female or something. It gets to be a little bit ridiculous. But it is, I think what you say is really the, the nub of it. It's a sign that we don't have more serious problems, and yet it seems like we do have a lot of serious problems. It's a sign that people want to fight about stuff that just seems to matter so little in people's real lives. And, um, and so I think, um, you know, between the New York Times deciding that freedom really means getting stuff from government. And this is the major, you know, the, the biggest paper in the country, kind of the, the uh, paper of record. And they have been pushing the 1619, that slavery is everything about America, that there's nothing but slavery. That was the whole idea. Uh, The scholarship in the 1619 project uh, by all kinds of scholars on race issues and slavery and so on. uh, They've been uh, very critical of the constant mistakes that that have been made. you know, published and and trumpeted, uh, and it's clear that there's a political agenda there, and and so we see you know just this effort to redefine nearly everything uh, as if you know as if the, the United States is now in a swirl of kind of Marxist oppression theory and so on, um, and then that leads us to uh, what is the crisis du jour. You know, we we have a pandemic that's killing, you know, it's killed, what, I guess, 140,000 Americans now, something like that, and uh, continues to be a huge problem. Uh, But we have traded that for a problem of racism and police abuse and mobocracy. And so really this week, we were largely on the issue of criminal justice reform and uh, and racism and how government should deal with protesters versus how government should deal with violent mobs. Because those to me, and I know to you, Tim, and I think to most people, are really two different things. Um, but let's start with um, the thick blue line, which, uh, you know, all right, I'll give you the credit. It was your title. Uh, I can't remember what terrible title we had before that, but which was mine. But uh, but it's a good title because one of the things that that I don't think gets talked about, and therefore I think I, I don't know if people get it. So often we're you know America is a racist country. Uh, there's 
racism and white privilege. And it's, you know, and, and you're kind of thinking, well, people are kind of suggesting that people in America are racist. I mean, that's how, you know, the, the rocks and the, and the stones and the trees aren't racist. But if you, if you look at it from strictly the criminal justice lens, the American people are solid on issue after issue of reform. Years ago, when we had the, the uh, killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, and remember, of course, that almost all of these uh, uh, deaths in police custody or shooting of unarmed people, black, white, or whatever, um, and, and there's been shootings of people of all colors, um, but oftentimes, you know, it's just been so egregious, and it just seems like the facts are so clear. Let's just for a second realize and remember that the facts in the Michael Brown case were not very clear. And from two investigations, including one by the uh, Justice Department headed by Eric Holder when Obama was president, both of the investigations found uh, that the officer, I'm going to forget his name, it was there for a minute, but I believe his last name is Wilson. Anyway, that he was not at fault and that Michael Brown was the aggressor in that instance. Now, they, didn't have, they don't have a crystal ball. They don't have it all on videotape. And so nobody knows with certain certitude that that's what happened. But that's what all the evidence is, if not all, that's what the overwhelming evidence points to. Uh, and I just say that because so often you hear about the, the killing of an unarmed black man, Michael Brown, in Ferguson, Missouri, and it, you know, the rest of the story is never really said. Um, now, we have had so many instances, and I started off talking about, you know, Minnesota's the land of 10,000 likes and nearly as many, uh, you know, killings of uh, unarmed innocent people by police. A little hyperbole there, but, but it's, uh, there was, uh, what is it, um, uh, Castile, uh, Placido uh, Castile. Uh, there was the woman from Australia, and, and she was a white woman, and then her, the policeman who shot her was Somali uh, uh, ethnicity and, um, and ended up being convicted and sent, sentenced to 12 and a half years. And so there's a certain amount of race consciousness there that, wait a second, the killing of uh, Castile, which just seemed to, to be unreasonable and outrageous uh the officer gets off and this other killing uh castile was black this other killing which seems equally outrageous uh the the officer doesn't get off but anyway that's that's uh you know the the, the bad part is when justice isn't done it's it you know if it's done for a white woman good good too bad it's not done for the black person that's where we fix it we don't we don't you know the goal is to isn't equal suffering, it's equal justice. But anyway, the, the point of all this is the public on police cameras, in the polls I saw, and you have to remember, I've, for years I looked at polling on term limits. It is like the most boring thing in the world, 70, 80% for it, across all demographic groups. So I'm not, I, I'm used to seeing poll numbers that are off the charts, because usually when you're doing initiatives, you know, you're not trying to win 51, 48, nine issues. You're, you're doing 70, 30 and 80, 20 issues. I've never seen issues like police cameras, civil asset uh, forfeiture reform, 
those sorts of things. The numbers are 85 and 88 and 92 percent in favor of of ending civil asset forfeiture or requiring police cameras. And yet um, so many of these things are so slow to roll out. And police cameras, which has been one of the things that has has really spread across the country very quickly. Everyone says, well, that's great, except and this happens so often. It happened with uh, uh, with. Um, eminent domain reform. That eminent domain reform happened all over the country. The problem was it was all completely phony BS reform that didn't solve the problem. And uh, for instance, uh, in in Tennessee, where they passed this big reform, front page news, I remember talking to one of the guys at the uh, state think tank there who said, oh, it's a worthless reform. Well, literally months after they passed this reform to much fanfare and applause, uh, there's this big eminent domain grab for a private uh, uh, entity, not public you know, use. And everyone's up in arms, how could this happen? Well, written into that reform was something that allowed eminent domain seizures only when done by a development court, like a government development agency, which is, of course, who's doing all of these. So it, it had no benefit, no real benefit. And that's the sort of thing that's happened. It's happened on civil asset forfeiture, where they pass some reform. But there's a zillion loopholes that the average person isn't going to see, but that the police and the legislators do see, I think. And, um, and part of this is because of the power of, of uh, police unions, uh, certainly. But part of it is also, and we'll get to that in a second, but part of this is also laziness on the part of the media who wants to have headline journalism, but not into the weeds. For instance, why isn't there more mention of the fact that they get these police cameras, but there's no rules. There are no rules requiring them to wear the police cameras. There's no rules requiring that they make that footage public. The whole point of police cameras is for the public to know they're going to get the full scoop. But if the if the police don't wear the, the cameras, don't turn them on, it doesn't help. And if they're able to play games with whether or not they turned them on or whether or not they're going to release the footage, then it's no longer a protection that protects both the citizen and the policeman. Because, you know, policemen can lie, so can non-policemen. The beauty of, of police cameras is that it gets at the truth. Well, if police can decide they'll give the truth when it helps them, but hide the truth when it hurts them, that's not solving the problem. So there's all kinds of things like this. But the Cato Institute had a, uh, a very recent poll and it found uh, a lot of support, over 60 percent support for two reforms that are somewhat new. And I think both of them important. One, uh, you may see the, the sign to my right. Uh, uh, on ending qualified immunity, police are able in so many cases to just against all common sense to say, gee, I didn't know if I, you know, threw this person off a building that it might hurt them. And, and therefore I should be, I should have immunity to any challenge to my, you know, having done that and violating this person's rights. And it, this is a, it's not a law, it's a court decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, 
And so it's a little bit fuzzy and it has been stretched to allow police all kinds of immunity for situations that are just ludicrous. And there's links at at, uh, thisiscommonsense.org and and, uh, just search for for, uh, qualified immunity. You'll see uh, a number of, of commentaries we have on it and links to the Cato Institute. Cato Institute's had a lot of good stuff on qualified immunity. And this is something that, you know, getting rid of civil asset forfeiture will stop uh, some of the corruption of police, but it doesn't do much about police shooting suspects. Uh, and, and qualified immunity by changing some of the rules that make it so tough to discipline, discipline police will get at that much better. Now, it's all important. We can't, you know, the more corrupt our police forces are, the more apt they are to shoot somebody and think they can get away with it. Um, and the more they're shooting people and getting away with it, the more they might think they can rob us too, which is kind of what civil asset forfeiture is. Um, but we need more things that will get at the ability of police to commit murder and get away with it. And, you know, the public is very understanding of the pressures on police. Uh, part of the problem has been that we're so collectively, I think, so understanding of that, that we see a policeman in a situation where, geez, how does he know? He shoots his gun too fast. We don't want to come down on him. I think that that line has to get moved and police have to be much more fearful that they are going to be prosecuted and imprisoned, not just lose their job, if they decide to shoot a bunch of people because they're scared. And it's a scary job, and there are times where they are going to shoot someone in a situation in which they realize after the fact they shouldn't have, but that they had no, you know, no choice because of the way things happen. That, that scenario can take place. We have to realize there's all kinds of interactions here. And, and not kind of get on the, the police are always wrong or the police are always right bandwagons. But the, the second reform that Cato pulled on, uh, which really gets at the heart of the problem with the thick blue line, is they pulled on the idea of preventing collective bargaining, police unions, from being able to collectively bargain for restrictions on accountability measures. In other words, in a lot of the contracts that the police unions are cutting with city X or Y, in that contract has all kinds of protections so that if after every two-year period you throw out all the records of policemen misconduct so that they can't be used in the future, well, now, how does that help accountability? It doesn't, but it's something the police want. And so they negotiate it and they get it in the contract. And it would also, um, they are able to negotiate to say, um, you know, we don't have to do all kinds of things that are related to accountability when there is an incident like this and investigations. Um, I think you know, that we need automatic independent investigations anytime there's a, a police killing. 
Um, and so there's there's a lot of things that can be done by like that. But part of it is to hit at the power of the police unions because they are super powerful. They're powerful because uh, they control, you know, they, it's a little association of police officers who have a lot of power individually. They carry a gun and they carry a badge. Uh, but also they have power because especially after 9-11, one of the best endorsements, the two probably best endorsements for any politician is being endorsed by the fraternal order of police or being endorsed by the firefighters. Americans see these first responders uh, who actually are usually the second responders. The first responder is some poor person like you or me who's going, oh, my gosh, look what just happened. What am I going to do? And usually we're very glad when the second responders come in. But well, I, I digress. But um, but they have have been kind of put on a pedestal. And politically, really since 9-11, uh, the police and the firefighters have been in a political position where they can get almost anything they want from government officials because those officials are leveraged by the political power that these police unions have and, and firefighter unions as well. So that's something that needs to be gotten at. And this poll that the Cato Institute did showed that over 60% of the people want to stop the police unions from being able to negotiate on those, on those subjects of police accountability. Um, and the truth is, I don't see any reason, and I think we're gonna increasingly, this is gonna become an issue. I personally don't see any reason why there should be police unions, why there should be any government employee unions. The argument for unions is that these robber baron, wealthy, private individuals had so much power that people had to be able to organize against them and not only organize against them, but if they got enough support in organizing against them to get recognized by the government and become an official union and be able to require that that the uh, that the company deal with them. Well, you know, uh, the American people are not robber barons. Uh, at least most of us aren't. And it seems to me that public unions, I mean, people like FDR, certainly to the left of me uh, and the left of a lot of us, uh, you know, back in the day, they did not believe it made any sense to be unionizing the public sector. And so that's, I think, going to increasingly be an issue. Um, instead, of course, we have heard about defunding the police. And of course, I think the police, you know, I think there could be some funding cut because I think we could cut back on all the ridiculous things the police are doing that they shouldn't be doing and don't need to do. And it could be defunded in other ways, like not, ha not buying a bunch of militarized equipment uh, to make your police look like, you know, stormtroopers. That would be helpful. It'd be helpful in saving money. It'd be helpful in presenting a different image to the public. Um, so there's all kinds of reform that can happen and that must happen, must happen, because some of the frustration that's out there is because we've had years of these horrific, outrageous police actions that lead to people dying. And nothing seems to change. And that is going to create frustration. And and it should change because, you know, the, the George Floyd incident, I don't know a single person 
This isn't a 90-10 issue. This is a 100-0 issue. I don't know anybody except maybe the policeman who had his, his knee on his neck who thinks that that was okay. And so we should have this time of unity in which we are taking some action to get control and accountability in our police forces and in our government. Instead, because we don't have good representation in Congress, in the city council, in the state legislature, most of the police reforms that should have happened a long time ago, I, I mentioned in this commentary, uh, the chokeholds that have been a big issue. And, you know, Eric Gardner, I believe that was 2013 when Eric Gardner was killed in a chokehold. Well, New York City police that choked him, they had said, don't do that. That had been against city policy, police department policy, since 1993. So for like 20 years, but it had never been made law that no, police may not do this. Well, why not? And why, you know, uh, two, three weeks ago, D.C. City Council passed something stopping uh, saying that you couldn't use chokeholds. But really, what happened in all these years in between? Did they not read the paper? Did they not care about criminal justice reform? And the truth is, the parties, both of them, tend to look at issues as things that help them get elected. Solving issues sometimes doesn't, doesn't even enter the equation because that just takes the issue away. It doesn't get them elected. And, and, you know, I think somebody out there will say, Paul, that's just too cynical. Now, come on, be reasonable. I'm telling you, that's the way the thought process works that I've seen in state legislatures and in Washington, I assure you. And so, well, look at immigration. I mean, I don't think either side uh, wants anything to happen other than that it continues to be an issue that they can, you know, use like a meat grinder to get out you know, their, their side. So anyway, the, uh, but I digress on, on immigration and we have lots of problems, but, but, um, in terms of this whole situation, the public's there, the politicians have been slow, slow, slow. Uh, the police have tremendous political power, which is a problem, especially when we don't have representatives listening to our people power, our voter power. Uh, and I've long argued for doing a lot more initiatives on this subject. Uh, but, uh, and there have been a number of, of them done. I've worked on several of them, but not enough. And there, there needs to be a lot more. But we've, we've kind of jumped, I don't know if it's jumped the shark, but we've, we've jumped from just having this horrific criminal justice problem that festers and doesn't get nearly enough done about it to kind of parlaying that into not an insurrection. It's way short of an insurrection, I think, but violence and protests, both. Um, and I, I know that there have been lots of protests because I've been to protests. And, um, and most of the protests, of course, have been peaceful. And it seems like that we... We want to fight. We want to fight as a society. But again, one, on criminal justice reform, it's hard to fight because we almost all agree. We just can't seem to get that done. When it comes to protests, there's really nothing to fight about because 
just about every person agrees if it's peaceful protest, then it should be protected. You have a right to do it. Now, you, you don't have a right to sit in somebody's business or, you know, there's certain things you don't have a right to do that aren't necessarily violent, but they're they're disrupting um, somebody's private property and their right to live their life. But but certainly these protests are not the problem. And I don't think you have anybody uh, uh, to speak of right, left or center who would come out and say, we have to stop these protests. In fact, uh, in the commentary that uh, that uh, I did on Wednesday, which was uh, cops and mobs, tyranny and law, um, I quote uh, uh, Ken Cuccinelli, who's now at the uh, was the attorney general here in Virginia and somebody who I know a term limit supporter and and uh, have met him on a couple different issues, uh, have, have worked at least alongside. And um, he's now at, at Homeland Security and basically said, look, we are going after only violent rioters. We are not going after protesters. Period. Full stop. And and now, look, there's been investigations. You've got the inspectors general, now two of them. They're going to look at what happened in D.C. at Lafayette Park uh, as far as clearing the square and, and what federal agents did or didn't do and whether it was right or wrong. They're going to look at, at Portland, Oregon. And as I said in that Wednesday commentary, they should. Um, it never hurts to investigate, make sure people are doing the right thing. But. That Wednesday commentary, I was somewhat critical of what is arguably my favorite think tank in this whole country, which is the Cato Institute, where I used to work. Uh, and I wasn't really critical of the Cato Institute because, you know, there's a lot of different people saying different things there. Uh, but Patrick Eddington, who's a, a research uh, uh, scholar there, and and I bet I bet uh, Patrick and I would agree on the solutions on uh, 95% of the issues in criminal justice, if not more. But I took issue with the way that he portrayed what President Trump is doing there. And maybe after it's investigated, maybe I'll be wrong. I'm, I'm not saying I know what's in you know, Mr. Trump's heart or anybody else's other than my own. Um, but, but you know, his view, he basically said Trump's trying to disrupt these protests. He's not trying to protect monuments. He's trying to disrupt the protests. And, you know, if he's right, well, then that's a heck of a that's a heck of a bad thing to do. It's against the law. It should be against the law. And it's, it's actually impeachable. <laughs> they finally we finally found something. Um, but. He also made the point, I'll just, I'll, I'll uh, read what he said uh, verbatim. He was talking about it and he admitted that this guy that was picked up, Mark Pettibone, the guy who was picked up by federal agents, uh, now there's some allegation that they didn't identify themselves or this or that. Well, look, file the charges, make the lawsuit. If they didn't, then they were wrong and, and they're going to have to you know, suffer the consequences. But what we really know is that they picked him up for questioning, which is something that police are able to do lawfully. And then when he didn't want to answer questions without an attorney present, they released him. 
And and uh, uh, Caleb Brown, who's the host of the Cato podcast, said, well, you know, in looking into, you know, let's let's look at how police should rightfully do it or and see what happened here. And he points out that, you know, that seems to be what triggered his release. And of course, uh, Patrick Eddington agrees. Yes, that did trigger his release. But he says that this, quote, really does have the feel of Argentina or Chile in the 1970s with the disappearances that took place. The only thing lacking was Mr. Pettibone being murdered by those agents. Now, just step back for a second and think about what happened in Chile and Argentina with disappearances. These are people taken off the street taken to a stadium sometimes somewhere else, not given their rights as far as answering questions with an attorney present or being released or or what have you, given no rights whatsoever, and then being summarily executed, murdered without any trial, any due process, any rights whatsoever. What happened in Portland, now he wants to say that the only difference is they didn't kill the people, the person in Portland. Well, first of all, being killed or not being killed, big difference, really big difference. And so you, you kind of have to recognize that, I think. But the other thing is that's not the only difference. The difference was night and day. Whatever happened, and maybe they violated some things, and as I've said 68 times just in the last few minutes, if they did then come down on them. Let's make sure we do. But what they did was to question somebody and abide by and recognize his rights. That's fundamentally different. That's totally different in every way, shape, and form. And so I think the reason that I felt it was important to bring this up is for people to get a feel for What's being alleged? Look, you know, Trump talks differently than some people. Um, I don't particularly like his style. But you have to look at the reality of what someone does. And you cannot just simply go to the worst possible case scenario of what you think might happen and then act like that's solid fact. Because it's not. It's not anywhere close. So now the other thing that I mentioned in this script and that I just I don't know what to think about this, but um, I know Mark Pettibone's name. He's the guy who got a lot of press because he was pulled off the street in Portland. There's another guy and I should have gotten his name, uh, but then I guess I couldn't play this little game. Uh, But there was another guy in Portland weeks ago, weeks ago. I think it was the 7th or 9th of July who was protesting outside the federal courthouse there. And I don't know that he was peaceful or not peaceful or anything else. It's not like I followed him around or or anyone else did and, and knows exactly what happened. But what we do know is that he was hit by an impact weapon, a stun grenade, uh, and apparently it was shot and hit him in the head and went off. So a pretty serious situation. I don't know. I know that he was in, in uh, critical condition. Um, 
and it's a serious situation, uh, injury to the head, which obviously can be serious, but uh, it wasn't a scratch. And to me, one of the things that I'm most concerned about and upset about throughout all of these protests and so on is the ubiquitous use of tear gas and the ubiquitous use of rubber bullets and stun grenades and things like that. And I recognize that there, there can be a time where to protect the peace, you have violent rioters and so on, and you need to use some of these, what they call non-lethal weapons. The problem being that sometimes non-lethal weapons can be lethal, um, but they're not designed to be lethal. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not clueless. I realize there could be a time where you, you need those. Uh, because your only other uh, alternative is, you know, hand-to-hand combat or 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 real uh, ammunition. We don't want to go there. But the the level at which we use it, and the fact that it doesn't seem to be requiring any sort of political decision making. In other words, I think we need to look back at this and and see what police did. I think we need an investigation, not to not what every mistake that was made, but where are we using tear gas and rubber bullets and what is precipitating that use? What's the threshold that, that has to be hit for, for a city police force to say, okay, now you can use tear gas. Um, because these are, you know, tear gas is not likely to kill people. Although, you know, in, in protests, uh, last summer in Iran, uh, they were shooting tear gas into crowds and there were numerous people killed because they were shooting the tear gas into the crowds and people who got hit with the tear gas were being killed. Um, so, you know, these things that, you know, are designed not to kill people when there's violence, when there's rushing around, when there's smoke, these are not safe situations. And I think that we need to we need to have some rules and some sense that we're not looking to break up peaceful protests. I know that, uh, you know, when I was in Hong Kong last, last uh, September, uh, I got hit with, with not in the, in the face or anything, but all around me with, with tear gas. And I was aware of my surroundings. There was no reason that I could see. I saw the police who shot the tear gas. They weren't being pelted with stuff. I mean, I've seen the film of the Chicago police being pelted with stuff. That wasn't what was happening to the police who I saw shoot the tear gas. So there are times, I think, and I I don't think just in Hong Kong, all over the world, there are going to be times when police decide we've had enough of this protest. And of course they can shoot tear gas and the protesters run this way and that way. We do not want to get to that place. Uh, So that is another Thing that I think we've got to do is is to look at what sort of tactics are being used. And and I'm kind of surprised that all the coverage has been on Trump sending forces into this these cities when I think you can see that there there's certainly a need, whether whether the best thing to do is to send federal agents in, that's an, that's another question. But there is a need. That's where all the focus is to sort of paint him as a fascist and as, you know, he has his own army 
um, instead of the tactics that are being used just across the board that I think are cross often crossing a line that our public officials should not cross. And that's getting almost no play. Here's a problem I have. Um, you haven't mentioned the fact that there's Molotov cocktails have been thrown, uh, directed fireworks, and laser beams pointed at the off- eyes of officers. Uh, that's one of the things that was said today, is that the, according to the, you know, the Trump administration, three officers have lost some vision and think they'll pr- have permanent loss of vision because of the laser beams. So I was saving that. Yeah, well, that's that's a problem, though, is that because we're dealing here was, you know, the mayor of Portland called it urban warfare that Trump was engaging on the populace of Portland. But there is urban warfare engaged in by those rioters. I mean, it's happening at night, by the way. You know, during the day, there's protests. At night, there's something else. Right. Yeah. That, that's yeah. kind of a problem, right? It, it is. And, and that's I, I wanted to fully lay the groundwork that. Protests are a right. They must be protected. They can't be stomped on. And that criminal justice reforms have got to get made. And there's nothing in the way of politicians of either party doing it. Because in every state, in every city in this country, there appears to be widespread public support for just about every one of them. But you're right that the other side of this is that You cannot allow people to destroy, to threaten, to assault. On Friday, we did uh, the script. I'm going to forget what the name of the name of it was, but it was it was about mobocracy and what is happening in in Portland. And I'll just as a uh, as a little aside, I read an article and may do something on this next week. I talked we talked about this yesterday. I read an article in the Washington Post about Portland, and the whole thrust of the headline and the thrust of the article, the spin of the article, was that the right wing in America is trying to make a big deal out of Portland. And in talking about it, they gave some of the history of Portland. Well, no wonder it's the people are trying to make a big deal out of Portland, because they had riots and fighting and violence uh, again and again and again. And of course, they have protests there over uh, George Floyd. But George Floyd was not, that didn't happen in Portland. And there are riots after the, and, and, and vicious attacks and all kinds of violence after the Trump election. When Trump was elected, that's not Portland police attacking them. That's them unhappy with democracy. So I, I just thought that was interesting. This whole piece in the in the Washington Post, I remember seeing it and I thought, oh, this is interesting. I wonder what this is. How is the right wing, you know, uh, beating up on Portland? And the whole article was was one example after another of how lunatic things have been in Portland. This mayor has certainly encouraged, it seems to me, the protesters. He has, and and in a completely hypocritical way, he goes out there the other day and he says, I'm standing with you, and if they tear gas me, they'll tear gas you, they'll have to tear gas me. And it's a bunch of phony, sickening political theater because 
one, his security detail with him. And you know what? A lot of us, if we wanted to go down to downtown Portland, we wouldn't have a security detail pay for a taxpayer expense to help us through that mob. He did. But there was scuffling, according to the newspapers. Now, they didn't go into much detail, but there was scuffling. Well, you know, verbal arguments are one thing. Scuffling sounds to me like there was physical force use. That's a crime. That's assault. So the mayor's people were assaulted by this crowd that he's in solidarity with. But then it also comes out that after he left, the Portland police threatened to use tear gas on the crowd and stun grenades and other impact weapons and perhaps rubber bullets and so on. So it's like he's up there doing this vis-a-vis Donald Trump, who's the evil fascist, but he leaves and his police department is going to do exactly the same thing. So what comes out is that he recognizes, unless he's a complete, you know, clueless, unless he's a a robot, not a real person, he recognizes, one, that this group in control of downtown Portland, just a a small area, I take it, but, but in control, that that's not a safe group. Because not only did he have to come in with security detail, they scuffled with him. And then he also has to recognize that his own police department is being required or is doing the same things that he's bad-mouthing and bemoaning Donald Trump for doing. And, you know, now, I'm, I'm somewhat uncomfortable with rolling out federal people going to Chicago, uh, going to some of these other cities. I'm, I'm a lot better with it in Kansas City, uh, where the Kansas City local government has welcomed them. But, and I have relatives in Kansas City. I didn't realize the murder rate is up uh, almost 50% over last year in Kansas City. And there's been a number of different incidents. Now, again, it seems to me like these sorts of things ought to be solved without federal agents coming in. I just don't like the, I don't like the optics of that. It seems to me that's the wrong level of government to be, you know, it, it, look, the, the state, the city, there are other levels closer that ought to be solving some of these problems. But it's it's certainly not as if federal people aren't allowed to go into states. Uh, they ought to be dealing with federal laws, not state and local laws. But, you know, I think that the, the reaction to Mr. Trump suggesting some of these things would be more helpful to the country and to stopping bad things while not stopping good things that he might want to do if it was not always hyperbolic, he's doing, you know, he's the same as Pol Pot and, you know, he's, he's that, that we're two seconds away from having disappearances across the country. Um, fascism, uh, it's, it's funny, big government and, and serious evils don't tend to happen because somebody announces it and just overpowers the whole society. It's usually a little trickier than that. 
And I think, frankly, um, I hope that, although I think the news media is very, very slanted, I hope they will be as awake for whoever's president next as they have been for Mr. Trump. Because, frankly, before Mr. Trump, uh, I think I think there was a whole different sheriff in town. The media was not tough on Mr. Obama. They didn't ask tough questions. They didn't hold them to account. They really didn't do very much to hold George W. Bush to account. Um, and so as, as much as I think they're way, you know, uh, over the top and partisan, um, I hope they will at least bring that level of energy to holding the next president to account. It is interesting to note that fascism came about, and as well as National Socialism in Germany, came about because the communists and the lefts, and basically the reds, reds as they were called, were violent in the streets. They were that, and then the fascists stepped up and became bullies on the streets and fought them. And the people of Italy and the people of Germany were largely on the side of the fascists because of the communists riding in the streets. And and so when so when I hear a leftist mayor saying that he's worried about a fascistic president, well, maybe we should start worrying about the communist, so to speak, the leftist violence that's precipitating the demand for crackdowns. And that is how they got in there. I mean, it was if, if it weren't for the communists riding the streets. You know, Ludwig von Mises, my favorite economist of the 20th century, there's a passage in Liberalism, his book Liberalism, that praised the fascists. It's a weird passage, and I've written about it on Quora, but... He did it because they saw communism as about ready to take over Europe. I think that's something we need to talk about as well. Because if somebody's talking fascists, we, we should be worried about the communists or the anarchists in this case, uh, violent well, in the streets. You know, the, the anarchists in this case, I don't, I, I don't like the term anarchist. And then, of course, anarchist has a terrible connotation. But most of the people I've known in my life who have claimed to be anarchists, they're really for voluntary government. They're they're peaceful people, but they think government is is wrong. And and the only way to make it right is to make it have to abide by the rules that businesses and civic clubs and others do, which is that everything's voluntary. Hard to get there. But but uh, I second that emotion. The. Anarchists that we're talking about in these different cities are a bunch of violent idiots. They, I don't think they have any deep connection to even kind of anarcho-syndicalists or, or the, the more left anarchists of a century or more ago, a couple centuries. Um, and, and uh, you know, they, I don't think they're, this is not some splinter group of a political ideology these are a bunch of of uh, punks and um and and so but they're anti-capitalist punks they yes, are they deliberately are. And, and explicitly anti-capitalist yes they are yes they are and they're but but it, it seems to me that it it almost it gives them more credit than they're due to give them a name like anarchist to even use and i don't mean that to say i'm I'm big on the name anarchist. I'm just very not big on these thugs. 
Um, but it, it, it is the sort of thing where the scary thing about this is the political support it gets. And, and we talked about um, one of the things that, I, I, that scared me uh, during the 2016 campaign, and I wrote a column about it, um, was when Trump did his rally in San Jose. And it seemed obvious that the police decided to stand down. And there's all kinds of footage. Anybody can go to YouTube. Um, uh, but there's all kinds of footage showing uh, older couples leaving and being harassed. You know, the, the knocking the, the hat off the old man's head, uh, sitting there with his, you know, 60, 70 year old guy and his wife and a bunch of young hoodlums harassing them. That, I don't know who that looks good to. I, I don't know who that looks good to. It sure looks ugly. And most people remember the blonde, curly blonde haired woman who was outside of a hotel. The hotel was afraid to open the door, I think, to let her in, in that the mob might come in. But she was egged at close range. A crowd of men... Uh, if there was one woman out of the 50 people in that crowd, I'd be surprised. Uh, throwing, as, taunting her, yelling at her, calling her names, and throwing eggs at her head and body, kind of hard. Um, that's, this is, I mean, that's just ugly. It's just ugliness in, in a way that you rarely see. And no repercussions for San, San Jose and their police that they just allowed this to happen. Um, and, you know, it just and, and of course, somebody who hates Trump was like, well, you know, Trump at that rally said that go ahead and slug that guy or something. He'll defend you. <clears throat> and I think, yes. And that is the ugliest thing that I think Donald Trump has ever done that I know of. That I, that I know for a fact he has done, I think it's the ugliest, most despicable thing he has ever done. And anybody who says, I can't vote for him because he did that, I understand 100%. I'm with you 100%. Because you cannot do stuff like that. But of course, but, but it's happening all over the place now. In these, you know, you can't say, and, and it, I've heard a lot of times that, the, you know, some of this vandalism, so on. Oh, it's just property. But it's somebody's property. And what sort of environment? You know, some people live in downtown Portland. Some people have businesses there. And what does it say that, I, you know, do you want to go down to visit somebody or to go to a store if people are destroying things and setting fires and, and there's graffiti everywhere? I'm not, you know, graffiti isn't the worst nightmare in the world, but frankly, graffiti on your own property, not somebody else's. You know, we say we don't have to like embrace graffiti uh, because we're woke. I mean, this is, this is, it is not somehow paradoxical to believe that peaceful protesters have every right to protest. And that the government ought to arrest people who violently destroy things or intimidate or threaten people. Those, that, that's how the world should work. That's not, 
you know, you don't pick sides. Oh, I'm for the protests. Therefore, they can harass and assault somebody or set a building on fire. That that doesn't, you know, or I'm against uh, arson. I'm against graffiti. Therefore, beat up protesters. I mean, that, neither of those make sense. And that's not where the American people are. But it is where our politicians are. And part of the reason that they can be there is it's where our media is. Thank you for tuning in to This Week of Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. This episode of the podcast has been for the penultimate week of July 2020. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at, at Workman, that's Workman with an I, not an O, on social media or at Locofogo.net. Paul Jacob can be found every weekday at thisiscommonsense.org. This podcast can be found as Common Sense with Paul Jacob on SoundCloud and accessed through a number of uh, podcatchers, such as Apple, Google, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. I really do thank you for tuning in, and uh, come back next weekend.